At various times in my life, I've had these epiphanal moments where confused things became clear, where the nature of my disorientation was cleared up, and before me, I could see a visible path to choose. One of those was when I was in, in seminary, and there was a young fella who had just been born to us, went by the name of Kaler, he's much smaller than now, this is ten and a half years ago, and I was in seminary and I had been coming to class very intensely, I had been studying very voraciously, I had been sleeping Never. I had been ingesting voluminous amounts of citrus hit, which if you don't know what that is, it's not an illegal drug, but maybe it should be. It is the Publix brand of Mountain Dew. Until I realized how many empty calories I was taking, and then I started drinking voluminous amounts of coffee, hooking myself up to coffee IVs and such. Not really, it's for effect. But as I hit points of exhaustion, and as I started to reckon once again, as I had in other times in my life, with the choice set before me, I realized something fairly terrifying. I was, I say this not as a boast, but just as a statement of fact, I was, I was good at being a student. I knew how to do it. I knew how to do it well. I could remember things. And I knew how to work hard. I was terrified of being a guy who didn't work hard. And so I didn't sleep much. And I worked lots. Because the thought, the thought of not getting an A seemed as if someone would be poking me with a dagger in the eye. And I started to realize as I was on the brink of insanity and utter exhaustion, and I was faced with the fact that I now had this baby at home and probably should have something to do with him, and I actually liked them a great deal too. And I was confronted with these family responsibilities like never before and with these studently responsibilities and this realization that something had to change. I couldn't live without sleep. I couldn't live working as hard as I was all the time in fear of not being great. And here's the realization I had. What happens... If I am not the guy who outworks everybody, what happens if my friends don't sort of jest and joke about me being the guy who sleeps so little and overdoes everything? I realized I had started to forge an identity based on those things, and they were killing me, but I was terrified to give them up. Can you relate to that at all? This thought of knowing, you know what I've got to do? My senior year of seminary, I did something that was unheard of in my academic life. I skipped a class or two, or four. I had a baby. I was involved in other things, and I, I realized for me, I don't urge you to skip classes. Okay, parents who are here with your college-age students, go to class. You'll learn much. But for me, it was really a good thing to do, and to have the thought that what happens if I make a B on a test? It really did feel like death to me. It created a tremendous amount of anxiety to me because I was sitting here 
and I felt like my entire identity was on the line. Now that sounds pathetic, doesn't it? But then you back up for a minute, I hope, and say, this is the confrontation that meets all of us all the time. That everywhere you go in your life, there's this temptation that boils down to one of two things. You can have this choice of having an identity based on being God's image and being the possession of Christ, or taking something in this world and letting your identity be based on that. And even though you know better, you're always and I'm always tempted to look to something. Something good, like school, like accomplishment, like your family, like achievement. And saying to that, you are the one who must make me. You are the one who must save me. You are the one who must show me and show the world that I am someone. And what we say implicitly every time we do that is, Jesus, you're insufficient to do that. Jesus, you can't be my king. You're no good at saving me. You're no good at making me someone. I have to find other recourse, other avenues to peace, other avenues to flourishing. And the problem is we never realize we're doing it. We don't normally set out to do it. But that's the kind of folks that we are, and that's the kind of challenge that we have. And no matter which season of life you're in, because your season of life, the temptations will change. There's some of you right now who have invested with the attributes of deity, the notion of romance and relationship. You are thinking, because you're young, you are thinking, if only I could find a husband. I'm about to graduate college and I don't have a husband yet. Everybody else at Covenant's already married. They're 17. But you're saying, I've got to find a wife. I've got to find a husband. Who am I going to be if I don't have a wife? And some of you, your whole life is fixed on finding that certain someone. It dictates what you do and what you won't do. It dictates your hopes and dreams and prayers and aspirations. And you have unwittingly made that this fictitious person out there somewhere. You've invested them with all the attributes of God. You're the one who will save me and make me and rescue me and tell me that I am someone. You will be the one who completes me. Well, some of you, it's not that. Because you're at a place where you're saying, can I have another husband, please? Hopefully no one's saying that. But people have said it. Some of you are saying, implicitly, if I could just matter in the world, if I could just accomplish something so that people would notice it and think something of me, or if only my children can be an adequate and radiant reflection of my wonder, if only I can make enough money, if only I can have enough success in the job that I'm doing, if only I can look as dazzling as Pastor Eric... It's a joke, okay? You have to make sure people are paying attention. It's getting warm in here. But at different stations of your life, there are different things that become more important to you. But at every station of your life, there is a clear choice to make. And that is, will you be seeking a king out of Jesus? Or will you be seeking a king out of all the extraordinary things that he has made on this 
planet. And as you look today at this passage that Bethany just read, it's a passage about the king walking into the city of Jerusalem, enthroned in the praises of a small cadre of folks who have recognized, even though they don't fully understand all that's entailed in his kingship, that he is indeed the chosen one of God who has been sent into the world to fix what is broken. And I'd love for you to see as we look at this little passage, two things. Look at this little scene as, as a movie scene and as a, as a mirror. The movie scene is a movie meant to move you to real king-seeking. After Jesus had said this, we're told, he went up ahead to Jerusalem, he approached Bethpage, he was going down the Mount of Olives, he told his disciples, go to the village ahead of you, there will be a donkey there. Tell the guy we've already talked about that the Lord needs it, bring it to me. They put Jesus on it, on top of their cloaks. People are throwing their cloaks down and they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he says, I tell you, if they are silent, all of the inanimate creation is going to start howling what they're failing to. So there's no sense in telling them to be quiet. And then he says, as he approaches the city, we're told this about Jesus. He wept over it. He looked out over the city where he was going in, and in just a few days... In just a few days, he was going to be standing before the Roman governor with cauliflower ear and a split lip and the most gross miscarriage of justice the world has ever known over these people who were going to conspire with trumped-up charges against him and that he, being God himself, would not lift a finger to do anything to change him. And he would die there alone and naked, jeered, flogged, spat upon, forgotten. And he looked out over that city and he wailed. But not for himself. He wailed over people that he wanted that did not want him back. Now, if this was a movie scene, if you could place yourself there, if you could watch on to this scene, I think it would move you. Because you'll start to see something different about Jesus than all the rivals to king in our lives. Do you realize that Jesus has this full orb affection for people who will not reciprocate? He is wedding two things that people never wed together. He is saying, in an act of full disclosure, there's no fine print with Jesus. He says to this city, as he looks out over it, tears streaming from his face, heart breaking in two. If you, only you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes, the days will come when you are going to be obliterated. Your national security is going to fail. Your alliances are going to Prove futile. Your Star Wars defense system ain't going to do nothing. You're going to be besieged and it's going to wipe out your children and your wives and your lives. Now, Jesus offers full disclosure. Who does that? You ever watch these commercials? See, what idols do is they offer, they offer 
some kind of disclosure, but there's always a lot of fine print that they never fully disclose to you. It's like the, the guy I saw in an advertisement talking about com- men's complete health vitamin or whatever. And as he's talking, it struck me as so strange as he's making all these declarations about the superior cardiovascular health and the clarity of his mind, the correct functioning of his prostate. I don't know. And, and as he's talking, there is flash because we live in an overly litigious and nervous regulated society. There is a flashing sign in fine print saying, none of these statements have been verified or evaluated by the FDA. And I think, isn't this a funny thing that we do? That this guy's making these declarations and at the bottom they're saying, just kidding, maybe. (laughs) And of course, that's what happens on these car commercials. There's always fine print. It goes by really fast. You can't see it. But they've disclosed it because they're required to by law. Jesus as opposed to all the idols who will say to you, give me everything. Mothers, make your children the center of your world. Depend, make everything about your life depend on them. Make everything about your life depend on how well you do in school. Make everything about your life depend on how well your business does, how much money you get. Make everything about your life depend on how many people think you're fantastic. And all of these things that are temptations to you, all these things that you give yourself to, the idol never says, there's going to be trouble. I'm going to disappoint you miserably. I'm going to ask for everything and give back nothing. But Jesus makes it very clear. He says, if you don't recognize me, I'm it. I'm the only show in town. If you will not receive me, you will receive what you've asked for. A forever of going your own way. A forever of your own hell. The making of your own. This destruction that Jesus forecasted happened in A.D. 70. The Jews in Jerusalem, they were destroyed. And you know, so he talks with this full disclosure, unlike any of the fine print of our idols, that says, judgment comes if you don't embrace the peace that I bring. But you know what he does? is He does an uncharacteristic thing that almost nobody does. Is He weds the judgment with weeping. He weds the judgment with weeping. Who does that? Aren't we accustomed to a kind of judgment that comes out like a, a scorned lover who videotapes the bonfire she's making of her boyfriend's pictures and posting it on YouTube so the vitriol can go viral. Look at me. Ha <laughs> I hate this guy. He scorned me. Watch him burn. The crazy pastors burning Korans. There's an article this week in Time Magazine, the lead article, What If Hell Doesn't Exist, or something like that. And it's feature stories about Rob Bell. He's written a book called Love Wins. Rob, um, I don't know Rob, so I'm calling him Rob as if we're buddies, but we're not. But he pastors a church of like 752,000 cool people with cool glasses. And it's not that big, but he is a very influential fellow. And apparently in his book, I haven't read the book, I don't know anything about it, I'm not making any statements about it, I don't know anything about it. 
What was reported in this story by John Meacham was that in this book he raises the possibility that maybe hell doesn't exist. Maybe, or if it does, it's unoccupied, things like this. These things have been offered by people many times before. And what occurred to me as I read the story, and I think, well, that's a really dangerous thing to say because it's hard to read the Bible and think that, I think. Because Jesus talks about hell more than anybody. But you know what I realized is that part of what's driving this, as you hear him interviewed, is that there's this sort of cavalierness that, that, that talks of judgment, that talks of who will be condemned and who will be vindicated on the last day as if it's no big whoop. And I think you hear in Bell this, this enormous compassion that wants to worry about that a little bit. And I realized what would happen for us if we started to see that Jesus, when he talks about judgment coming on people who reject him, there ain't an ounce of happiness in him. His guts busted over it. His heart is shattered over it. He realizes the tragedy of it. This is why Francis Schaeffer said, Christians should never even speak of hell without tears filling their eyes. Would that we would seek our king in such a way that our love for people would be so fierce that we would want them to know the things that lead to peace. We would want ourselves to know the things that lead to peace. And we would see him with this full-orbed affection, even for people who reject him, and think, what is his affection for us? And, And compare that to the stoicism of our idols. Do you think that two years ago, when some of you lost 30 to 40 to 50% of your retirement or of your net worth, that night when you were a wreck, did your money cry for you? Oh, you poor dear. I'm sorry. Did your bank account give you a hug? When you lost your job, did the people at work or when you had to retire or when you didn't do as well in school as you thought you might, or when you got broken up with, did you, do you think your workplace shed a lot of tears for you? Sorry, they didn't. See, none of the things that we're tempted to make, the things that make us, give a rip about us. You have a Savior here, the real King, who's coming into Jerusalem to be pummeled by Jerusalem, and He's crying for them. There's not a parent in here who doesn't understand this. What it would be like to watch your child choose self-destructive ways. And to know that maybe what they're getting is what they ought to be getting, but being destroyed by the knowledge of their destruction. Your Savior gives us a movie scene here to move us to real king-seeking. A king who gives full disclosure. A king who has full-orbed affection for those that he adores. And even for those who won't adore him back. It's a movie scene. It's also a mirror scene for us. A mirror to us to reveal our true king-seeking nature. See, because in this, this scene, as Jerusalem is being approached by Jesus, you see really the only two responses that can be had. The Bible's pretty clear about this with regard to Jesus. You're either his friend or his enemy. 
You're either on his side or not. And of course, in our experience of it, a lot of us, we, we vacillate all the time. We forget and we come back. We, we're treasonous and we return. But what you see here is a picture. You see on the one hand, you see the lion's share folks. While Jesus is being enthroned in praise, you see the lion's share folks in this city. The city of peace who didn't know the things that brought peace. They didn't recognize Him. They didn't respond appropriately when God moved into their neighborhood. And so Jesus is crying over them, saying, oh, I can't believe what's going to happen to you. There's not going to be one stone left on another because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, most of us are not as drastic as that, but what I would say is, are there places... Is it worth considering how in your life, how implicitly there are times when you say, I don't, I don't know if you're enough, Jesus. I don't know if you can really be king over me. Because in a way, all idol worship is, is king seeking. You know what the big ailment of Israel was in the Old Testament when they had been rescued from the political uh, oppression in Egypt. They had seen the remarkable provision of God. They started to flourish as a people. And they said, we need a stronger national security. Uh, This Yahweh dude ain't enough, is what they effectively said. We want a king like everybody else. We want to be... Not, they didn't mean to say it this way. We want to be afraid of what everybody else is afraid of. God's not good enough for us. God can't protect us though He always has. God can't provide for us though He always has. God can't make us an identity though He always has. We want a king like everybody else. We want strong political power like everybody else. And so Samuel was really mad about this, but God said, don't, don't give them what they want. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And I think as I watch Jesus weep over the city, I think, are we going through our days just rejecting him all the time? You're not good enough for me, Jesus. You're not enough for me, Jesus. Your ways are not right for me, Jesus. You don't have anything to say about this conflict I'm in. You don't have anything to say about this child-rearing situation I'm in. You don't have anything to say about who I am and how I spend my time and how I spend my life and what I'm shooting for. You're not good enough, Jesus. None of us says it explicitly. But as we pursue other rivals, we're saying it implicitly all the time. But there were a few there. There were a few there who couldn't unsee what they'd seen. Their faith made them see the miracles that Jesus had done, we're told. They were praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. And so they were recognizing that heaven had landed on earth. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, they were saying, so loud and obnoxious that they were having to be quieted down. You're going to cause a ruckus, these Pharisees implied. But see, they started to see the music that Jesus was bringing and they couldn't stop from stamping their feet. They started hearing it and it started a rhythm in them. They couldn't stop moving. And that's what happens always when you start to recognize who Jesus is for you. How His kingship makes you. 
How He provides for you. How He resources you. How He emboldens you and changes you. And so, if this is the sort of thing that gives us a mirror, are we, are we saying to Jesus, you're not enough? Are we those who are enthroning Him with our praise? It would seem that we need some suggestions for how can we recognize Him as King? How do we get the foot stamping going? How do we join the throng of those who are having a concert where they're heralding Jesus like a rock star? Well, here's a few suggestions for you. One is this. I urge some of you to have rehearsal dinners for the king. Huh? What? All right, here we go. Some of you have been married. Some of you are about to be married. One of my favorite things about weddings is when you get to go to the rehearsal dinner. And if you've been to a rehearsal dinner, a good one anyway, what makes it good ain't the food and the, the place. What makes it that's a That helps some of you who get too nervous about this. You know what makes it good? It's all the people that you adore and who adore you, who have played a substantial role in your life, are there. And after everybody's eaten, they might pour a little wine or champagne or some ice cold Coca-Colas. You, some father will stand up or some friend who's emceeing the thing and they'll open up the floor to toasts. And people will start to share stories about their friends, about their son, about their daughter, about their girlfriend, about their brother. And as they start to share these stories, I'm always moved. Because, see, I don't, I don't know all these things about them. And as I hear these things rehearsed, it's called a rehearsal dinner because it's the day you practice the wedding. But also, at the rehearsal dinner, you're rehearsing the significance of these people in your life. The joys of what they've brought to you. What you admire about them. And you know what happens is the whole room is a glow and admiration and warmth for this couple as they, as they are all celebrating this magnificent event. I had an opportunity a few weeks ago when I was with my pastor buddies. We meet a couple times a year and they're all over the country. And we were meeting together. We decided to divide up our time into three sections where we talk about what's challenging us and what's something in us and then what are we celebrating? I forgot the other category. Confusing us. Challenging, confusing, celebrating. Yes, three C's. They're pastors. And so, one night, we decided to do the celebrating time over dinner. And some of the guys may or may not have had an ice cold malted beverage, but I won't comment on that. But as we were eating this excellent steak dinner and as we were seated all around the table... And guys were laughing and enjoying and eating rare, raw meat. The stories of celebration started happening. One man would, would talk about how businessmen in his city had come to him and said, I'd like to lead a study of other businessmen so they could come to know more about Jesus. And we're sitting there going, what? Businessmen don't do that. And we raise our glasses and toast to the king, everyone says. And I know even reporting it here, it sounds a little hokey and a little corny, but it seemed magnificent to me then. A man talked about it, irreparable, irreconcilable kind of conflict that Jesus had stepped right down into the middle of, that we had been praying for, and how it got remedied. And at the end, we toasted and said, to the king. And men talked about Muslims coming to Christ and 
faith being given and replenishment coming and all sorts of things. We heralded the activity of this Savior as we had seen it in the last eight months since we'd been together. And each time we toasted each other and said, To the King. I'd love to see this congregation. Maybe today after church, at lunch together. Maybe throughout your week from time to time. Scrap family devotions. They just result in fighting and anger. Sit around your table and herald the activities of the King. Let your kids participate in it. College students, gather around the table and talk about the ways that you've seen your Savior be a Savior. That even though it's not always apparent how everything is under His rule, show how you've noticed it. And you know what happens is it emboldens everybody around you. You start to see and recognize the King and you find yourself being endeared to Him. You find yourself wanting to trust Him more. That's what we have to do for each other. So these rehearsal dinners for the King, I urge them on you. And also I would urge you these. King... 360 evaluations. Huh? I love these things that don't make any sense. I read a book a few years back by a fellow named Palmer Parker. And he is a Quaker. And in the Quaker tradition, one of the important ways that you make decisions, you determine the Lord's leading. You determine things about vocation and how you're going to use your time and your money is you have a clearness committee. And a clearness committee recognizes that the Spirit of God is at work in His people. And what you do is you get some trusted people in the church around you and you you tell them about the situations presented to you and they do nothing but ask questions. They don't advise, they just ask questions of you. The questions are revelatory. These people can see things about you that you can't see for yourself. And you know what happened for this man? He was being offered a presidency at the college, which is probably what's going to happen to me at Covenant since Neil Nielsen's stepping down. I've already told him no. But they were beginning to offer him these questions. And he his whole life had wanted to be a college president. And you know what occurred to him as they asked him these questions? It occurred to him who his real king was. He realized, you know what? I think the only reason I want to be a college president is so that my name will say Palmer Parker, comma, college president. Because it'll appear in the newspaper. Because it'll seem like I am somebody. There's nothing about my being that suggests that I should actually be a college president. But I would love the acclaim of it. My guess is that there's some of you, if you would begin to expose yourselves to each other in the career choices that you're making, in the ways that you're spending your time, the ways you're spending your money, the ways you're raising your children, and you started asking each other questions, you started sharing, you know what would happen? First of all, you would, you'd begin to see where your real king-seeking is. You'd begin to see like, oh my goodness. Oh, the main thing to me is just how other people perceive me. Uh, I'm about to go into a job only to make money? I'm going to be miserable for the next 30 years? Because I'm not going to do something I'm made to do? If you have other people around you helping you to see who's your true king and helping point you to the true king who can give you peace, it'll be a rich and satisfying thing. Our king seeking is often confused. We've got to have ways around us to make time to recognize Jesus as this king. 
who alone brings peace, who doesn't want us to seek for the things that bring peace that are apart from Him. And the best way I know of this is is revealed in a story that I read. Some of you may relate to it. It comes back to my story about overwork, to my seeking an identity apart from Jesus and being terrified, what will happen if I give it up, even though I know I need to? Who will I be then? Who will I be then? Well, there's a story that I read in a book about a woman who said, when I was younger, my children were younger, I found it very difficult to go and spend time praying to God. I had a yearning to do this, but there were all so many responsibilities. There was always meals to be prepared and clothes to be gotten ready and household duties to be attended to and meals to be cooked. And I was told in those days, what I needed to do is just pray all the time. Keep a continuous dialogue with God going. And I listened to Christian radio and I thought, well, maybe that'll do the trick. And I felt afraid to actually spend any devoted time, even though I felt God wooing me more and more to this. She said, even my husband was urging me, you can do this, I'll watch the kids. And she said, when I finally took the risk to set aside this, all of these things that I thought were so much making my life, these were my life. I, had, I couldn't give God any more time. She said, when I finally walked away for a bit, when I first started to pray and I first started to walk and wander with God, I felt an ache in my chest. I began to spill out the, my hurt before Him about a son who was missing and I hadn't heard from in a month. I began over the weeks and months to pray over the broken relationships around me, my friends who were struggling, and I began to find Jesus actually there. A king who can save, a king who can bring peace, a king who can affect change, who can cut through all of the things that I've been hoping for, all of the ways I've been giving myself to other kings in hopes that they'll make me and save me and rescue me and identify me. And it took the risk of saying, I'm going to part ways with good things, with precious things for a time. And she says, when I knew that I was making progress was one Thanksgiving. When I was so eager, as most moms are, for this Thanksgiving celebration to be perfect. And I'd always made these special rolls. And these rolls, you know, these rolls, all good cooking gives moms great acclaim. I assume some dads cook, but not in our house. And she said that year, I was praying and I didn't have time to make the rolls. And I began to pray instead for the perfection of the meal and how my house was and for all the pressure that I put on the situation, I began to pray for God's purposes. And that was our most fantastic Thanksgiving ever. No one missed the rolls, she said. This week, as we enter into Holy Week, you have a king with full orb affection who says, don't miss out on the peace that I bring, the flourishing that I bring, the healing and the repair that I bring by foolishly looking to the things I've made to bring it. Let's seek our king all week together. Amen.